Story three of Hugh Walpole Selected Short Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story three The Dog and the Dragon in Reminiscence, nineteen twenty three rachel seddon sat on the fourth floor of the titan hotel in new york trying to read marquette's humpty dumpty the heavy clumsy volume fell on to her lap and she turned her eyes to the window in the light of the spring afternoon apricot purple tinted the cars buried deep in the black shadowed canyon of fifth avenue looked from where she sat like a vast army of black slugs waiting for an order from some officer the traffic lights watchful eyes of red or green suddenly changed across the ribbons of street numbers of little black figures scurried in fear for their little lives the lights changed again and slowly the army moved forward bent on its secret inevitable purpose rachel tired of the muddied contents of mr dumpty's mind stared about the pretty pink and white soulless room the room was close and heavy with the scent of flowers the windows could not be opened because the noise from the street was so great on the table were several brightly bound volumes not foolish either the last word in culture perhaps young mr elliot's wasteland old mr pound's collected verse the poems of edna st vincent millay the last word and the next word hovering even then above those so innocent victims waiting eagle-like to strike rachel did not care her intelligent young friend mamie doherty had brought the books and said that rachel must read them rachel had attempted a page of humpty dumpty and that was sufficient she was not clever enough to understand she could hear mamie's shrill tones but you must keep up my dear you must keep up she did not want to keep up she was not modern at all she was early victorian she always had been her eyes moved wearily back to the cars slithering through the faint yellow light faintly through the closed windows came the shrill cry of the electric hammer open those windows and the confusion that would come rushing into the room a matter of life and death to keep them closed but the room was warm her hands closed on her lap her eyes fell h d slipped to the floor and there wallowed in his own grime her son had been married only a fortnight before it was for that that she had come to america he was now on his way to japan roddy like his father so kind so good so unimaginative and now she was alone in the room rich good-looking for forty-six popular and alone quite alone no one at all comfortable in health position secure as very few perhaps were secure in this new uncertain world and alone in half an hour clarice would arrive to take her her eyes closed two her eyes closed but she was not asleep her dress of dark purple silk spread its skirts about her like a cloud her face still sharp with some of the austerity that the early years of her married life had given her lay back against the amber-coloured cushions of the long easy chair her hands closed in her lap receiving at once the lifeless outline of wax 
Her bosom slowly rose and fell. Beyond the window she heard the dim voice of the metal hammer. Someone in the next room was speaking at the telephone. No, she was not sleeping, but she seemed to be narrating to someone an earlier experience, an experience of so long ago that it belonged to quite another life than hers, and not only another life, but another age, another world. To whom was she speaking? To Roddy, perhaps. Not to Roddy the Second, so young, so modern, so self-assured and restrained, but to Roddy the First whom at first she had not loved, and afterwards her eyes flickered, her hands for an instant rose and fell again, as though in a gesture of recognition. Well, Roddy, we did make a success of it, didn't we? In these days that's something to say. Weren't those last ten years the happiest possible to man? I like to look back now and see how happy you were. That is, perhaps, now that your son is married and gone, because whatever I may pretend, he is gone. The girl will see to that. The greatest pleasure left to me. Who knows? It may be that so much happiness over so long a time deadens us. Certainly since your death I have had some good times. I would rather be alive than not, but that morning when I looked at you for the last time, something went, and it was not only because I was losing you." Something went in the world, too. Something has gone out of the world. We all feel it. We all know it. Or is it only that I have reached the dangerous age, the real, true, dangerous age, and it is simply my own youth that I am missing? You can tell me, Roddy. You know me so well. Am I so egoistic as that? I won't believe it. Something gone out of the world that we have got to get back into it, or we perish. Intensity of feeling? The intensity, the pause that came from waiting, from listening, the pause that we can't secure now, try as we may. Why do I feel nothing intensely any longer? Is it because I am forever being moved away from it, pushed on by machines, always something buzzing in my ears that refuses to allow me to listen? Machines, machines, machines! I tell you, Roddy, they're awful. Much worse than when you were alive. Worse every week. More of them. They move faster. They make more noise. I don't care any more. I have no fear any more. Nor passion. Nor deep, luxurious sense of beauty. The thing that Lizzie Rand used to call putting the key in the lock and feeling that it turns. Do you remember? And if we don't get back these things, we're lost life is at an end we too are machines and the key to the door is lost forever no fear any more i told you roddy once about that night when grandmama rex found me in her bedroom talk of terror there was intensity of feeling if you like that was life i am back again savoring it turning it over on my tongue trying to find in it something that the world hasn't got any more romance green and gold and ebony with the dragon's eyes and the mongrel dog yes there was something in that something precious and deep and splendid oh roddy help me help me to drag it back into life again three you know i've told you often enough 
that I was only seven years old when I was taken to live in that Portland Place house. Seven years old, with black, staring, rebellious eyes like a little witch. I hated everybody because I was so desperately frightened. It was not a house, as you yourself know well enough, to encourage a small child's confidence. No, not a house for confidences, and not, as I saw it then, for any romantic fancies either. I was a queer little child. I like, from where I am swinging half asleep, to lean back, stretch out a hand, and pick up that kid with her large, black, staring eyes, her expression half of fright, half of curiosity, her wonder, her loneliness. Oh, it doesn't bear thinking of how eternally lonely small children can be. And that was a house to be lonely in. Those Portland Place houses don't seem so very large now to one's grown-up eyes, though in these after-the-war days they are much too large for any ordinary civilized person. But to a small lonely child, a desert. That was what it was. A desert. It was divided, I remember, like Caesar's Gaul, into four parts. The servants' quarters, the public reception, see your friends at tea-time quarters, Granny Rex's quarters, and the desolate barn-like rooms where Miss Monch, the governess, and the old nurse Proddy, and myself, passed our dreary hours. They were dreary for all of us, and for myself, terrifying. Terrifying, of course, because of my picture of the old lady on the other side of the wall. You saw, Roddy, how, until she died, I never quite recovered my security. To any small child, she must have been awful. It wasn't only what she was in herself, but the breathless attitude that people adopted when they were speaking of her. The way Miss Monch herself would sink her voice and throw her eye over her shoulder, and, as to Nurse Proddy, at the mere sound of Granny Rex's name, she would quiver all over like a jelly. I, at seven years old, didn't, of course, know all that the old Duchess stood for. I didn't know any of it. How much more wonderful even than she was would she have appeared to everyone then had they known of the European War? And they didn't know, lucky for them, that they didn't. But she stood for enough as it was. She was a past mistress of pictorial effects, of silences, vanishings, speaking oracularly, sitting between her green Chinese dragons on her golden throne, bullying by proxy, and all the rest of it. Oh, there's no need to tell you, Roddy. Of course, to a small child she was simply terrifying, and doubly, of course, to a lonely, imaginative, sensitive little thing as I was. And I hadn't a friend. I wasn't allowed to play with other children. Adela and John and the others were good to me when they had time, and that, of course, was seldom enough. Miss Monch believed in her good old methods for bringing up children, saying sharply, "'Now don't do that, Rachel!' on every possible opportunity, and being absolutely inhuman. According to Lizzie Rand, who knew her afterwards, she had troubles enough of her own. But, of course, she never took me into her confidence, although I was old for my age, and might have been of some comfort to her had she made the experiment. But when I think of Roddy Jr. and the time he had in his childhood, and the time I had...
i was punished on every conceivable occasion and punished generally by being shut up in the dark because that seemed to have more effect with me than anything else and indeed it had i was terrified of the dark in a way that miss monch couldn't even begin to conceive of i generally saw granny rex as i hid my face in the bed and she would come slowly out of the dusk with her waxen face and her fingers stiff with rings and a little body like a sharp-beaked bird's her snow-white hair and her claw-like hands but i suffered more from loneliness than from the dark my russian blood gave me a strain of melancholy as you well know roddy that loneliness desperately accentuated i had simply nothing and nobody to love all alone in that huge house i had an old rag doll that i adored and miss monch threw it into the fire one day because i had been naughty i bit miss monch in the finger i can feel the grit of the ring on my teeth at this moment and then i determined that i would never love anything or anybody again because it hurt so terribly when you lost them however i did love something again and it is just that memory that comes back to me now a certain night a terrible moment and that night that moment that passion of love and of rage seemed to me just now romantic as nothing in my life has been since no not my love for you roddy that was something else deeper but not so poignantly romantic and this modern machine-made world can it ever give one romantically what the old one gave one or is it only increasing middle age whatever it is it's a luxury to capture that moment again to have it in one's hand to touch it feel it to be aware of the romance stealing up through one's fingers four what i loved was a dog i don't know why i have never told you about this before it comes back to me today with more vividness than it has ever had tatters the dog called after a book that i loved when i was small rags and tatters forgotten utterly now i suppose and if remembered considered too desperately sentimental for the sophisticated cold-blooded young cradle freudians of today i saw the dog when i was out for a walk with miss monch it was trying to get up some area steps that were slippery with the january morning frost it climbed a step slipped back and then howled it was a kind of short-legged terrier nearly a celium i should think and it had a black nose and one ear black tipped just as though it had been dipped in the ink it looked at me as i peered over the area railing and howled so comically with one flap of an ear spread nakedly back that i couldn't resist it miss monch had gone on with her head in the air as she used to do when she was imaging matrimony and i was down the steps and had the dog in my arms and was back again in no time at all and then when i felt the dog in my arms his body all soft and warm like a hot water bottle and his legs hanging down his tongue licking my glove i simply couldn't let him go he was heavy and when i reached miss monch i was panting i think that she must have just reached the stage in her prophecies when he first drew her head to his breast because she said dreamily what have you got there darling 
and didn't wait for an answer. I put him down on the pavement, and he trotted contentedly beside me. He must have been washed quite recently by someone, because he looked clean, and he held his head up as though he were a prince. We were near our prison, and he followed me in through the heavy grim doors as though he hadn't a care in the world. The footman said nothing, and Miss Monch apparently noticed nothing. It wasn't until we were in the schoolroom, and the dog went straight for Miss Monch's work basket, and the reels were all spilt on the floor, that he was really observed. He was, of course, at once condemned. I was scolded, and there were some tears. Then Miss Monch found a letter awaiting her from a favorite brother, and the dog was quiet in a corner with a biscuit that I had found for him, and for the moment he was forgotten. It was then that I had, for the first time in my young life, a real contact with a human being. No one had ever, as far as I knew, loved me before. Tatters loved me at sight. He loved me, too, with dignity. He didn't make me feel a perfect fool. That January afternoon, as I now see it, how I look back to it and envy myself. Yes, envy. I am swinging now, perhaps, between the two, New York and myself, so comfortable and so wise and so well armored. Do I raise that window an inch and the roar comes tattering in, the roar so aimless and so threatening? But I have made my terms with this modern world, Roddy, and I know how to deal with it. A mask, a pair of iron gloves, an indifferent heart. No time for deep feeling, no pause for questioning. Our son is off my hands, happily married in the modern fashion. I have friends, money, flowers, security. Don't pity me. Only remember that if you could come back to me, even for an hour, I would throw all of this out of the window, down into that squealing, bellowing Fifth Avenue. And oh, how happy I'd be! But no time for feeling, and that is why I have such envy for that little creature with the black button eyes and the coal black hair, squatting there on the schoolroom floor, with the dog resting his nose on his outstretched paws, watching her. I felt in some strange way that that was to be the hour of my young life. It is impossible, I suppose, for a modern child, with its thousand and one toys and its grown-up experiences, to understand what I felt all those years ago. There was the romance of it, not only in my loneliness, my hunger for affection, but in a great house crammed with treasures, gold and silver, jade and ivory, and that old woman sitting on the other side of the wall and receiving the fashionable world like a queen. So completely had she always disregarded me that on looking back now, I am lost in wonder that she bothered to keep me at all. I don't suppose she ever had bothered. In the beginning, I fancied that Adela or someone had timorously suggested that it was the right thing for her to do, and on the impulse she had done it, and then forgotten it. Certainly on the few occasions, and you may be sure that they were as few as possible, that I confronted her on the stairs or in the hall, she would glance at me with surprise, and then move away, instantly forgetting me again. 
and so I lay on one side of the wall with the dog, and she sat upright on the other in the golden chair, and two dragons guarding her. I wonder which of us was the happier. On that afternoon, at least, there could be no question. Perfect peace in the schoolroom. I am there now. Miss Monch, busy over her letters, her rings knocking tiny raps on the table as she jerks her fingers, thinking, myself squatting, my hair in my eyes, pulling the dog's ears and whispering to him, the dog looking at me with eyes of love, perfectly understanding that I have been lonely and now I am so no longer, that I have needed a friend, that himself is happy now and warm and comfortable. The snow falls beyond the window with a kind of stealthy approval of both of us. The sky turns from green to purple. The watcher in the sky plants the stars like silver daisies. And then the catastrophe. In the form, as it so often was in those days, of Beldam the butler. I don't know whether I ever told you about him. He vanished long before your time, expelled ultimately for stealing, I fancy. In those days he ruled us like a king. He was large and very stout, with two chins, little beady eyes, bald and shiny. He carried himself as though he had a wooden board down his back, and he used to kick out his feet when he walked, as though he were trying to jerk off his shiny shoes. How I hated him! Oh, how I hated him! At the thought of that hatred, the waters of romance swell upward again. I wish that I could hate anyone as much today, that I could care enough. He was always interfering. Looking back, I can see that Miss Monch hated him quite as deeply as I did, but of course I didn't know that then. I didn't credit Miss Monch with any lively feelings, save sentiment. But I imagine that Beldam spoke to her as though he were her equal. He had social ambitions, I fancy. Like all the servants, he thought me a charity brat. It is true that I was her grace's quite legitimate grandchild, but as her grace never paid the slightest attention to me, that distinction of birth went for very little. I had foreign blood in me, was given to tantrums, sulked, was in the way. He stood in the door, looking at us, his shining, gleaming shirt-front heaving with his self-satisfaction. He gave Miss Monch some message, and then he saw the dog. He started as though a bee had stung his fat calf. A dog! he cried. I should have risen in defense, but the part of me that is slav made me pause. In another moment, Beldam had tatters by the scruff of his neck and was out of the door. I was after him. I can hear myself crying, Oh, Beldam, it's mine, and don't hurt him. Beldam turned and grinned. Yours, is he? he asked. What will you do with him? I suppose that the agony in my eyes, something lost and desolate in my figure, touched him. Drown him, he said. Oh, no, 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 no. He looked from me to the dog and from the dog back to me again. His fat face softened. And not a bad little dog, he said. Oh, we'll keep him until tomorrow morning and see. He departed downstairs, tatters howling. I went back to the schoolroom and stood, tearless, 
white of face, staring at Miss Monch. The room was dark now, and my soul was dark too. There was romance again, the sense of finality, a child's utter abandoned despair, an agony rich in feeling. But I saw nothing romantic then. I was simply resolved that I would act, act in some blind, final, catastrophic way, burn the place down if necessary to get tatters back again. I stayed there for ever so long without moving. People were used to my long silences, put them down as sulks, and so left them. But on this occasion I was reaching a crisis, fighting my way out and up by myself, and reaching some height, catching some view, now for the first time in my life. Why was I so meek? Why did I allow these others to put upon me, as they would, to order and command me? Had I no will of my own? No personality? Was I nobody? I had never had anything worth fighting for before. And now I had. What would they do to me if I defied them? Put me in prison? Starve me on bread and butter? Let them. Then the Slav part of me crept up, whispered that it was better to leave things as they were. Tomorrow, next week, I might do something. Too much trouble now. Too much trouble now. I was passive all that evening, washed my hands, ate my supper, kissed Miss Monch, said my prayers, undressed, and crept into bed. I even slept. Then I woke with sudden abruptness. I sat up and listened. Somewhere, Tatters was howling. I do not to this day know how I heard him. Call it telepathy, if you will. My room was at the top of the house, the butler's pantry at the bottom. But I heard him. I got up and went to the door and listened. I had no idea of the time. When a child wakes suddenly from sleep, it is always the middle of the night. I could hear the pulse of the house beating on every side of me. I opened the door and peeped out. The voices of innumerable clocks, the trickling of minute sounds like the whisper of a subterranean stream, and the house vast and desperately cold. I stood there in my nightdress, shivering, but still, so distant and muffled that it was like the ticking of a clock in someone's waistcoat pocket. I could hear Tatter's wails. I put on my soft woolen slippers and my red flannel dressing gown and stole down the passage. I had, of course, never done anything like this before. I was compact of tears and terrors, but in some way that evening a new character had come to me. I had a new soul. I was never going to be frightened by anything again. I stole down the stairs, past the landing, where the huge china clock used to be, you know the one Roddy with the moon face and the planets and the winds, down into the hall, swung the green baize door, and Tatter's howls came full upon me. He was soon in my arms, untied from the table-leg, licking my neck, wagging his tail like a pendulum, whining with pleasure. I began my return journey, and then, on the second landing, bewildered by the cold and the weight of tatters in my arms, I passed through the wrong door. I didn't realize it until I had gone through two rooms, and then I almost slipped and fell. In my woolen shoes I was sliding on the black ebony floor of the green drawing-room. 
you remember that room well enough how hideous by our modern standards with its heavy statuary huge black fireplace gold ceiling and faded tapestries in the night with the moonlight flickering in through the shutters it was ghastly i was terrified out of my senses rushed through a door then another one fled panting into a third room tatters slipped from my arms a small table crashed to the floor with a terrifying noise and a voice said who's there i was in granny rex's bedroom that would make something of a subject for a painter i think even in these clever days when subject pictures are so completely out of fashion the small terrified child in her nightdress the match suddenly struck the candle lighted revealing the high four-poster bed with its dark red hangings and the old woman sitting up her nose sharp like a pin her eyes flashing fire so at least those eyes seem to me that is the impression that i finally carry away with me two fiery eyes the cruel sharp line of the mouth the untidy hair the long skinny hands frightened terror beyond any words to describe descended and wrapped its icy cloak around me agony of fear piled up by endless hours of imagination picturing her never like this in her blue bed jacket and her gray hair tumbling over her shoulders but this new figure was more fear-creating than the recognized one i don't know what i expected instant death i fancy to the repeated who's there i answered it's me granny rachel i had never conceived of her i suppose as at any time sleeping she always had as you know to the very day of her death a love of fantasy and colour and the bedposts were of dark red lacquer there was a heavy chinese image of dull gold staring unblinking at me across the room a mirror of old silver sparkling in the candlelight the ugly old woman with her scrawny neck her yellow skin her scattered gray hair was strange enough in that setting i took it all in i think i was observant enough from the earliest times but what principally occupied me was my determination to overcome my own terror i wasn't going to show her and yet it was all i could do to force my legs to support me and my teeth were chattering so that i was resolved to speak as little as may be we stared at one another she was i fancy frightened too startled out of her sudden sleep not so easily won at her age what are you doing here not very far removed that question from who are you ah, i came the, the wrong room it was then that tatters played his part he suddenly from nowhere sprang on to the bed and barked at the old woman for all that he was worth he had never i suppose seen anything so hideous before at any rate he was bewildered by the candlelight dazzled by the silver mirror and barked to give himself courage well she was frightened then indeed and indeed a child from nowhere a dog from the bowels of the earth in the middle of the night in the very holy of holies she stared and then suddenly her terror yielded to rage 
she seized tatters and shook him to and fro with her old whipcord hands the while her gray hair like medusa's locks waved in the breeze the strangest curses came from her lips i was too young at the time but looking back i fancy that there were words there real stable-door barnyard words that years of artificial decorum had checked that only possibly poor adela had ever heard back to her eighteenth-century forebears and not such a great distance at that in any case i didn't listen when i saw tatters shaken like a rat and caught a glimpse of his astonished eyes something happened to me i rushed at the bed screaming you shan't hurt him you shan't hurt him i cried you're wicked you're wicked she turned and releasing the dog slapped my face a stinging hurting slap that i can feel to this day you bad bad child she panted and then suddenly it was over over forever for both of us never again would she pass me in the hall and have to pause before she remembered who i was never again would she be unaware of me on the other side of the wall gone forever any hope of friendship or even armed neutrality she would never forget she never did we gave one another a long quiet look she patted i remember the edges of her bedgown her look at me was almost furtive my look at her was defiant and in that defiance i discovered my own true personality never to lose it again i picked up tatters and went rachel seddon woke with a start someone was in the room clarice horby dear darling clarice oh no i was asleep dear uh, well not exactly asleep half dreaming half remembering those were romantic days nothing like them any more what days clarice bent down and kissed her oh no time at all have you the car outside yes we were due in seventy-first street ten minutes ago all right but can't we go to madison there's a dog shop there a dog shop yes i thought i'd like oh just to look not to buy of course but dogs are such darlings especially mongrels and a story three